Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would uh, open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 43. I'm going to be reading all five verses. Psalm chapter 43. hear the word of God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Oh, great God, it is an awesome thing to come before your word this word that you have breathed out from your very mouth. We thank you, Lord, for the scriptures. And we thank you that uh, when they are preached faithfully, it is as if you were opening your very lips to us and speaking to us. This is a great reality, Lord, a, a great mystery We pray that in this very hour you would do just this, that you by your spirit would take your word and that you would speak to us, that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds and enable us to receive the word in faith and in meekness and in love. Oh, Father, please come and do the work which only you can. Holy Spirit, please come and apply the word to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Over the past number of years, there's been a call within the wider evangelical church to not forget the Holy Spirit. It's very common to hear him referred to as the forgotten person of the Trinity. And a number of books have been written uh, addressing this subject, calling the church to give themselves to a deeper understanding and worship of the third person of the triune deity. Now, whether you agree with this diagnosis or not is is rather irrelevant for our purposes here this morning. The the reason I'm, I'm bringing it up is because I think that there is a parallel between our theology and our ethics. It has often been said that faith, 
hope and love are the trinity of Christian ethics. And we hear sermons preached and have no lack of literature on faith and love. But just as the Spirit has potentially suffered neglect within the church, so too I think it is fair to say that hope, hope, Biblical gospel hope is the neglected grace among the Christian graces. If you don't believe me, just try to find a book devoted to the subject of of hope. While there are countless volumes that have been written on on faith and love, uh, one is hard-pressed to find anything of substance written on the subject of hope. And for those of us who are familiar with the Scriptures, this should strike us as strangely troubling because the Bible speaks much about this gospel blessing and its importance in the life of the Christian. When the Bible speaks about hope, it it does not refer to wishful thinking. We oftentimes uh, use the word in this way, saying things like, Oh, I I hope that this is the last snowstorm of the winter. Or, I hope that the the job interview goes well. But, biblically, hope is not wishing for something that may or may not come to pass. Rather, it is a forward-looking, confident expectation in God and His promises. It is a faith-filled anticipation in what will surely come to pass. John Cotton defines gospel hope as a patient, certain, and grounded expectation of all those promises in Christ, which by faith we believe to belong to us. That's hope. And in Psalm 43, we have a beautiful picture of a believing man in pursuit of such Godward hope. Here we see a man struggling with unbelief, with depression, with a sense of feeling deserted by God because of his outward turmoil. And yet, in in the midst of this painful providence he has been dealt, he strives after God. He seeks to cultivate hope in the midst of what appears to be an utterly hopeless situation. And he teaches us how to pursue such God-centered gospel hope in the midst of the trials of our lives. I want to open up our text this morning under three heads. First, agony expressed. Second, presence sought. And third, hope obtained. First, we'll see agony expressed in verses 1 and 2. While it's not possible for us to know the precise details of the psalmist's circumstances here, it's clear that he was experiencing great outward turmoil. 
It's probably the case that this psalm was originally a part of Psalm 42, but was later separated for liturgical purposes. And we learn from the inscription of Psalm 42 that it was penned by the sons of Korah, who were temple musicians. They were Levites who served in God's temple. And it's evidence that this Levite had been driven out of Jerusalem by his physical enemies and now found himself in the wilderness, far from the temple, far from the dwelling place of God. And thus, in verse 1, he cries out for deliverance from his outward unfavorable circumstances. Vindicate me, O God, he says, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. He cries out for vindication, for God as the just judge of the universe to defend and acquit him against his many enemies and their accusations. He cries out for deliverance from their deceptive schemes. In short, he prays that God would bring the purposes of his foes to nothing and that he would rescue him from their wicked hands. His petition for deliverance gives way to a complaint in verse 2. We see that the outward turmoil of the psalmist produced an inward turmoil of soul as he experiences the injustice and treachery of his present circumstances, his soul becomes greatly disturbed. And he begins to question God. For you are the God in whom I take refuge, he says. I'm taking refuge in you, God. I'm hiding myself in you by faith. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Though he had taken refuge in God, his enemies and his circumstances were screaming, God has left you. He felt deserted by God. He had trusted in God, but all he had received in return was wave upon wave of chaos and trouble. God had promised blessing for the one who took refuge in him, but curses seemed to be the psalmist's lot. And this caused a sea of doubt to flood his believing soul. He says in verse 5 that his soul was troubled and in turmoil. Remaining unbelief had seized upon his circumstances as an opportunity to cloud his soul with darkness and lies, making God and his truth seem as a distant nothing. The psalmist here evidences a divided heart. At one and the same time, he is by faith hiding himself in God, and yet he feels forsaken by God. There's a war waging within his soul between belief and unbelief. And 
Friends, this is a common soul experience of all Christians, especially in the midst of trials and tribulations. In fact, this is one of the innumerable reasons that that God brings unfavorable circumstances and bitter providences upon His people. It's very easy for us to boldly declare our faith and trust in God when, when all is well, but it's when our circumstances are less than favorable that our faith is truly tested and tried. When there is outward turmoil in our lives, it often produces inward turmoil of soul, exposing the remaining unbelief within. And we find ourselves crying out with the psalmist, You are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever experienced turmoil within because of your outward circumstances? Have you ever looked at your life and thought, God has deserted me? Like the psalmist, we have countless enemies and experience many trials, often severe. And this oppression, this outward oppression can cause profound spiritual depression where the clouds of despondency and doubt seem as though they will never lift and God seems absent. Surely you've experienced something of this, Christian. The psalmist teaches us that when we're in the dark, there is only one place to go, to God, to God. We mustn't obsessively fixate upon our enemies or our circumstances or even our own sins, but we must bring our melancholy hearts to the Lord. And we are invited to unsparing honesty and transparency before Him. He already knows our hearts. We ought to reverently and humbly yet really vent our complaints to Him. When your circumstances and your doubts rob you of a sense of God's presence and His faithfulness, go to Him. Go to God. Express your agony to Him. But also look to your Savior. He is the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm of lament. Do you remember what the mocking crowd said of Christ as he hung bloodied and beaten upon the accursed tree? Matthew 27, 43, they said, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. In other words... They were saying that his trust in God was in vain because God had clearly deserted him. What a comfort. What a comfort for us, friends, to know that our Savior has experienced this turmoil of soul in his incarnate humanity without the slightest hint of unbelief. You'll recall his words in Gethsemane, 
My soul is very sorrowful, he said. Very sorrowful even unto death. He sensed the nearness of the most unfavorable of circumstances as his father lifted up the cup of his infinite wrath and fury and put it to the lips of his son to drink dry. His soul was sorrowful because on the cross he would experience the ultimate desertion of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. And yet, our Savior, as the sinless God-man, perfectly trusted in his Father, even in the midst of this unimaginable agony. And it is precisely because he was forsaken in our stead, that we, that you, my Christian friend, can have confidence and and assurance that God will never forsake you. It is because of His vicarious suffering that you can have hope in the midst of your suffering. So, having expressed his agony to God, the psalmist now, in verses 3 and 4, seeks after God's presence. In verse 3, he petitions God again for deliverance. But this petition is remarkably different from the first. In verse 1, he cries out for deliverance from his enemies. But in verse 3, he cries out for deliverance unto the dwelling place of God. Do you see that? In verse 1, he cries out for deliverance from his enemies. And then in verse 3, he cries out for the same deliverance, but now it's unto God. In other words, the psalmist is not desirous merely of being rescued for the sake of being freed from his physical enemies alone, but his purpose in seeking after deliverance is that he might have God. He wants God. These ungodly foes had forced him out of the holy city and banished him from the temple. And he is praying for his enemies to be put to flight that he might again go to the house of God. Thus he petitions in verse 3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. As Israel was led out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land by cloud and fire, so too the psalmist pleads for God's direction in the midst of his wilderness experience. He is longing to be back in God's holy dwelling place. But what exactly does he mean here by light and truth? The psalmist was under the darkness of oppression and depression. His outward oppression had caused inward depression, and he needed divine light to drive away the darkness. He was also encompassed about by lies. 
His enemies and his own soul were saying, where is your God? He needed divine truth to expel the deception of unbelief. And so that's precisely what he prays for here. The deliverance prayed for in verse 1 is the same deliverance prayed for here, but now it is deliverance given direction, deliverance unto God. The psalmist bolsters his petition for light and truth with an argument in verse 4. If God brings deliverance and leads him back to Jerusalem, then he will worship God. That's his argument. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. He is desirous for his mourning to be swallowed up in the presence of God. The psalmist wants his God. He longs to bask under the light of the divine countenance. But he knows that this holy God can only be approached by way of the altar. It was here at the altar that sacrifices of thanksgiving and atonement would be offered. And it was by means of the blood of these slain animals upon the altar of sacrifice that communion with God was had. So through the altar, he would go to God, his exceeding joy. God is not merely the source of the psalmist's joy, but God himself is his joy. He is the joy of his rejoicing, the joy of his joy, his exceeding great joy. And now having been brought back to the temple and having approached this glorious God through the altar, the psalmist would render God praise with the harp. He would worship God, the God who is covenantally His God. Notice that little word, His. Think back upon the cross when our Lord cried out those words, expressing his agony, feeling deserted by his Father. And yet, he begins with those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist knew this God as his God. We see here that the Lord graciously refocuses the soul of this man, not allowing him to remain in despondency and despair. By grace, his unbelief does not win the day. Rather, his faith directs him to Yahweh. And so too, friends, when, when bitter providences and vicious enemies surround us, we find ourselves in need of the same reorientation of soul. We stand in need of the same light and truth. When the darkness of our circumstances and our own wayward hearts seeks to undo us, we need light to see clearly and truth to think rightly. 
We need, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Nothing, nothing, will strike a more severe blow to our doubts and our depression and our feelings of being deserted by God than the bright beams of these glorious truths in Jesus Christ. Such divine illumination, such enlightening of the heart leads the Christian to the altar, which the writer of Hebrews tells us is nothing less than Christ himself. Christ is our priest, he's our sacrifice, and he is our altar. And it is through him that we have God as our exceeding joy. It is through him that God has graciously covenanted himself away to us, becoming our God. David Dixon comments on this verse saying, God reconciled through Christ is the life of the believer's gladness. I love that. God reconciled in Christ. God through the altar is the life of the believer's gladness. And when we have him, friends, and when we know him as such, there will most certainly be praise upon our lips. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God, writes this. He says, the ultimate reason, this is the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another it is to ensure that we learn to hold him fast. Packer's saying, the reason why Christians have so much perplexity and troubles in their lives, the reason why God sends these things into the lives of his people is this, one chief reason, that they would learn to hold him fast. And surely, the psalmist here could attest to that fact. His troubles were driving him to God. Can that be said of you here this morning? Are your trials deepening your communion with God? Do you, with the psalmist, seek after his presence when in the dark? Through the heart-wrenching agony, are you learning to hold him fast? Can you really say that he, through it all, through it all, is your exceeding great joy? These thoughts of divine communion direct the psalmist to divine hope. Divine hope, we see that in verse 5. Having petitioned God for deliverance, he now does something quite remarkable. He turns to speak to himself. 
He picks up his wayward, divided, unbelieving soul by the scruff of the neck and he asks, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within? These are rhetorical questions intending to make a point rather than to get an answer. He is saying, soul, there is no reason for you to be cast down. There is no reason for you to be in turmoil. And he then exhorts himself, hope in God. He's calling himself to have a confident expectation in God. For as we have already seen, that is what hope is, a confident expectation and anticipation in God being who He says He is and doing what He said He would do. And why should He hope in God? Because His God will bring deliverance He goes on and says, for, here's the reason, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. In the midst of the darkness and the lies vying for His attention, the psalmist exhorts himself to a forward-looking anticipation in the covenant faithfulness of His God. The voice within was saying, God has left you. But the psalmist takes hold of himself and says, wait just a minute. I know this God and I know His promises. Why would I doubt Him? Is not His smiling face behind this frowning providence? Has not this God promised to be a shield and a buckler round about those who fear Him? Is He not my shepherd who leads and comforts and protects me through the valley of the shadow of death? So, hope in God. He turns from speaking to God and He speaks to Himself. He moves from a God-word petition to a soul-word exhortation. In the midst of trying circumstances and feelings of divine desertion, we, friends, ought to imitate the psalmist here. We ought to petition God, but we also ought to speak to ourselves. Yes, you Christian need to talk to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones, as uh, was already mentioned by Pastor Dale, he asks this question. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? In other words, to turn the question into a statement, he's saying, Christian, most of your unhappiness in life, your depression, your doubts, your fears, all all these things, most of your problem is that you're listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself. You see, when when trials and, and difficulties come, our divided hearts are prone to unbelieving thoughts. 
God has left me. God does not love me. God does not care. He's not for me. I've sinned too grievously. And Lloyd-Jones is saying that our problem is that we listen to these thoughts as if they were legitimate rather than exhorting ourselves to trust in God and His Word. In such times of inner questioning and turmoil, we need to take hold of our soul and put it in its rightful place under God and His Word. This is precisely what the psalmist did He proclaimed hope to his hopelessly troubled soul. And if you're going to be prepared to proclaim truth to your own soul, you must have a storehouse of truth from which to draw. In other words, you must memorize Scripture and and hide it in your hearts. And, And you must be strategic in your memorization of Scripture, asking questions like, What is it? What is it that robs me of joy and hope in Christ? And then committing to memory those promises and precepts which relate most directly to your specific struggle. Perhaps it's physical disease, chronic pain, or disability that leaves you often feeling deserted by God or causes your hope to wane. My suffering friend, when, when unbelief rises up within you because of these things, take your soul in hand and say, soul, why would you doubt the fatherly kindness of your God? Has he not promised in Romans 8 to work all things for my good? And has he not promised in 1 Corinthians 15 that this weak, dying body will be raised imperishable in glory and honor? And has he not called me in James 1 to count it all joy when I meet trials such as this? O my soul, hope in God. Be as Job who covered with loathsome sores from head to toe and finding no relief from his physical agony, cried out, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? For he, is he not able to turn even these evils, even these evils which he sends upon me in this valley of tears for my advantage? Argue with your soul in this way. Bring your soul under submission to God's Word. Notice that there were four different kinds of Scripture that were applied to the soul here. There's the present promise, the present promise of God working all things for good. There's the future promise of God raising this perishing body up to glory. There's the precept of God commanding joy in the midst of trials. And there's the example of Job humbly submitting unto God in the midst of his physical suffering. When you put all of these various biblical elements together, it deals a powerful blow to the unbelief 
within. And thus, friends, be strategic in your memorization of Scripture so that you would have a a storehouse of promises, of precepts, of warnings, and of examples to draw upon in your time of temptation. This doesn't mean that you'll always be bringing all of these forth all at once. Sometimes one promise or one precept or one warning is all that is needed. Sometimes that is sufficient. But the more you have to draw upon here, the better. Maybe you're going through a difficult time financially with the loss of the job or a draining of the bank accounts, and you find your soul in turmoil as you think about the bills piling up and your situation seems utterly hopeless. Once again, stop listening to yourself and start talking. Start talking to yourself. Say, soul, I know good and well that the bank account is drained, but I will trust in my God. Just as Job blessed the name of the Lord when he had everything, including his own children, stripped away from him, so too I will worship my God and trust in him in the midst of this trial. For he has promised in Philippians 4 to meet all my needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And according to 1 Peter 1, he has stored up for me a heavenly inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Thus, according to Christ's command, I will not be anxious. I will take no thought for my life, but will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, knowing that God will take care of these things. Because if He so clothes the grass of the fields and so feeds the ravens, will He not much more care for me, His child? Brothers and sisters, We cannot allow unbelieving thoughts about God to run rampant in our souls. Stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. In whatever trial you find yourself, take your soul in hand as the psalmist does here and beckon it to hope. The writer of Hebrews says of Christ that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Christ, while exceedingly sorrowful as he endured the misery of divine desertion upon the cross, yet had a confident expectation in his Father. There was a joy set before him that was enabling him to endure the cross. A joy before his eyes. Unlike the psalmist, he didn't have to exhort his doubting soul to hope. He simply hoped. 
He was able to see through the bloody tree to the joyous prospect of vindication, of resurrection life, and of a new heavens and a new earth where he would dwell with his people in unending Sabbath rest. In the midst of his grave sorrow, his human soul was governed by a forward-looking eschatological vision. He hoped in God. So too, we must follow the psalmist and our Lord by laying hold of God and His promises in the midst of our tribulations. We must go to God and having gone to Him, we must then take hold of ourselves, bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If you are a Christian here today, if God is your exceeding joy and you have Him as your God through the altar, then you have every reason to hope. For your light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And God is calling you in the midst of your divine desertion, in the midst of your trials and troubles, to walk by faith and not by sight. I was thinking this morning, it just struck me, thinking about the psalmist longing for a physical temple in an earthly Jerusalem, longing for God to bring him back there that he might commune with his God. That was where his hope was. That was what he was anticipating. That was what he was eager for. How much greater is our hope, friends? We don't hope for an earthly temple in an earthly Jerusalem. But our ultimate hope is a spiritual temple in a heavenly Jerusalem. That's our hope. Listen to the words of John in Revelation 22, verse 3. Speaking of this new Jerusalem, this is your hope, Christian. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be upon their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This new heavens and new earth, this new Jerusalem, our hope, beloved, is a place where the curse is altogether lifted, altogether gone. Sin, death, its consequences. Back in chapter 21, John says that in this place there will be no more crying, no more pain. All the tears will be wiped away from our eyes and and we will be there glorified, sinless, in the presence of our holy, holy, triune God forever. That's our hope. So let us fix our minds and our hearts upon those things. Let us not get so caught up in the outward struggles of life that we lose sight of where we are going. 
that we lose sight of the hope to which we have been born unto. Maybe you're here today and you know nothing of this God and nothing of the hope to which the psalmist speaks of. You're without hope because you are without God. Maybe you even pray for deliverance from your outward circumstances and struggles, but you have no desire for or delight in this God who was the psalmist's joy. My friend, may, may you see today that, that your great problem is not your outward circumstances. That's not ultimately what you need to be changed, but rather your great problem is your inward heart of unbelief. As the psalmist exhorted his soul to hope in God, so too God is coming to you today through the preaching and he is beckoning you. He is commanding you to put off your unbelief and to come to him through the altar, through Jesus Christ, that he might be your God. You need God, my unbelieving friend. Thus, take your eyes off your physical difficulties and look to the risen Christ, to the God-man. He is your only hope and salvation. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way that it encourages and exhorts and Lord, for the way that you use it to strengthen our faith and to help us to press on through the difficult wilderness of this world as we head toward the celestial city. Lord, would you help us, would you give us grace to do that which the psalmist and which our Lord has taught us to do? Would you help us in the midst of the darkness of our circumstances to look to you, to trust you, to pray to you, to vent our complaints to you, and to turn to ourselves and to beckon our own souls and to beckon those around us to hope in you. Truly, you've given us a beautiful inheritance. You've given us every reason to hope, O oh God. We ask that you would help us to cultivate this grace and to grow in it for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.